Last week we talked about how the Ottomans were worried about social revolutions starting in coffee houses. This week we find out how Europe made that fear a reality on this episode of Delicious History. Welcome back to the show. As always, I'm Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, check us out on Instagram and Facebook, both at Delicious History Podcast, as well as our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to support this program, you can sign up to become a patron at our Patreon on patreon.com slash delicioushistory. As a bit of a recap for part one of this episode, coffee was found in what is modern-day Ethiopia and really found its footing in the Arabian Peninsula in the 15th century with Sufi Muslims. While some groups fought to make it illegal in that area, such as outright bans in areas like Mecca, it was the Ottomans that really took those restrictions to the next level. Murad IV was so concerned about coffee houses to be breeding grounds for revolution that he made them illegal and himself went out and decapitated people in the streets who were seen drinking coffee in public. So you might think that maybe it was just a cultural issue and those people were just being overly paranoid. Well, it turns out that their worst fears were realized when coffee hit European mainland. There were plenty of European traders, and crusaders for that matter, that found themselves within Ottoman territory and tried coffee while they were there. In fact, people wrote about it and talked about it, but it still never hit Europe itself. That was until the Ottomans made a bit of a mistake. You see, in 1565, the Ottomans thought that now seemed like a good time as any to conquer Malta. Shouts out to Maltese fans, by the way, out there. I spent my whole life thinking that my father's side of the family was 100% Sicilian, but it turns out that my grandmother may have been Maltese because of her last name. So I guess you could say I have some skin in the game on this one. Anyway, the Ottoman invasion of Malta didn't go so well, and the Maltese actually ended up taking quite a few Ottomans as prisoners. And, of course, when I say prisoners, I mean slaves, because apparently that was a thing in the 1500s. Anyway, through these, uh, let's go with prisoners. The Maltese were introduced to coffee because this was something that was part of the everyday life for these people at this point. Of course, while some Maltese decided to get their hands on this coffee, they were still a far ways away from Europe at the time. It was a few decades later that the Venetians started taking to the drink. Now, before we go any further, we should mention what Venice was at the time. Today, many of us think of Venice as being a, a very beautiful city in the country of Italy, but we have to understand that the country of Italy is very young compared to most other countries that we know in the world today. In fact, the country of Italy as we know it only really existed since 1871, as Italy was always considered a geographical area and not a nation. Venice is going to find their way in quite a few of our stories moving forward. During the majority of the time between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the Italian unification in the 19th century, Italy has been home to multiple city-states, or smaller ruling powers, based on its most popular cities or regions. For example, Florence, Venice, and Rome, or more properly known as the Papal States, were some of the biggest powerhouses throughout much of post-Roman Italy's politics. Southern Italy was oftentimes ruled as a group, such as with the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. At the time of this story here, Venice was really the major political and military force to be reckoned with in the Mediterranean. Beyond its own physical territory that it had at the time, 
If you wanted to do any sort of trade in the sea, there was a very good chance you would have to go through the Venetians to do it. In fact, it's been stated that this was one of the major reasons why other nations sent exploration parties to look at other parts of the world, since the Mediterranean seemed to be off-limits unless you wanted to deal with the Venetians. Because the Venetians were so influential, once they took a hold of coffee and started making it a part of their local cuisine, it spread like wildfire in other parts of Europe. In addition to the Italian continent and France really taking to the drink, it really spread quite quickly in colder areas, such as the Netherlands, Scandinavia, and Britain. Ironically, when we think about the British, one of the most stereotypical things we think about them is their famous love of tea. But believe it or not, Britain used to be one of the biggest drinkers of coffee in Europe, and some of the first coffee houses in the continent were started there. But let's talk about what coffee actually was at this time, because it may not be what you expect. I mean, like right here, I'm drinking a, a cup of, was it, roasted almond caramel flavored uh, coffee that came out of my Keurig machine. First of all, there were no trendy local roasters, and that was a huge part of the problem. You see, at this point, almost all coffee in Europe came from a single place, the port of Mocha in what is today modern-day Yemen. We talked about them in our last episode as being the spot where coffee really took off and where the Sufi Muslims used to use it for religious purposes. Because these coffee traders wanted to make sure that they had a monopoly on any trade involving this hot new trend, local authorities made it illegal to send raw coffee beans overseas. All coffee beans had to either be roasted or boiled in mocha, and were sent to Europe on long voyages in wooden boxes or barrels that were obviously not airproof. So by the time it actually got to its final destination, those coffee beans were already stale and possibly even contaminated. To make things even worse, some areas had restrictions on how coffee was able to be served and required it to be brewed in the Turkish style, meaning that it was to be boiled in water and not passed through a filter of some sort like most of us do now, then stored and reheated before being served. Okay, so let's th think about this for a minute. You have old, stale coffee beans being sent overseas, which were then boiled, cooled, and then reheated before being served. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound too tasty to me. And the fact of the matter is, it wasn't designed to be tasty. That coffee tasted just as horrible as you might imagine, but people weren't really expecting the types of complex aromas and flavors that we do today. Coffee was very much used as a drug when it was first served in Europe, and not necessarily something meant to savor. This was this new drink that came from the Holy Land and was able to keep you up. And that was pretty much what people were expecting. It wasn't until the 18th century in Vienna that people really started to play around with the flavor profiles. While sugar was sometimes added even in Ottoman coffee houses to make it tolerable, Austrians started to play around with other sorts of additions, such as milk and cream. The Italians really took that to the next level and became famous for a lot of drinks that we know today. One of the first coffee drinks invented in Italy, who is most likely a derivative of what they were serving in Austria, is still known today as the cappuccino. The name comes from the Latin caputium, that literally means a hood because of the similarity of the drink's color to that of the hooded monks that were commonly seen in Italy at the time. A funny story, I actually used to see monks in line with me at the supermarket when I lived in Rome. I mean, it was pretty wild to be like behind a guy at the checkout line who literally had nothing but a, a hooded robe and a rope around his waist. Anyway, I digress. What coffee oftentimes lacked in flavor, it made up in helping to create the world we live in today. 
You see, unlike what we see in the Arabian Peninsula or Ottoman Empire, the drink of choice for most Europeans at this time was alcohol. And lots of it. Now, full disclosure, I wasn't actually able to find exact numbers of how much people were drinking at the time, because I don't really think they wrote that down, because they're probably all drunk. But some information I was able to get my hands on talked about certain things such as Dutch sailors having a daily ration of a gallon of beer per day and a bar tab from the founding fathers of the United States. Yes, I know it's a different country in a different part of the world, but they very much reflected what was going on in Europe at the time. One evening at a bar in Philadelphia, for example, 55 of the framers of the Constitution decided to have themselves a, a nice night out. While we don't know exactly what happened that night, what we do know is what the final tab was, because believe it or not, that bar tab still exists. And it goes like this. 54 bottles of Madeira wine, 60 bottles of claret, 22 bottles of porter, 12 bottles of beer, eight bottles of cider, and seven large bowls of punch. Now, I want you to take all that in for a minute here. We don't know exactly what constituted a bottle of beer or porter or cider, though I would imagine it would be something like around the 750 milliliter uh, bottles that we see for wine today. But let's just take a look at the wine itself, okay? 55 people, and there were 60 bottles of claret, which is an older way of saying burgundy, and 54 bottles of Madeira, which is a type of fortified wine. That comes out to more than two bottles of wine per person. And that was just the wine. I mean, these are people who are obviously accustomed to drinking quite a bit. That being the case, since people were so used to drinking large amounts of alcohol, coffee is something that really would create a change in society. While we can't say there was a direct relationship between coffee and the Enlightenment movement of Europe, it does seem pretty interesting that as soon as people started sobering up and going to coffee houses instead of local pubs, we started to see some of the greatest minds in European history putting pen to paper. In fact, British coffee houses were oftentimes known as penny universities because it would cost a penny for a cup of coffee, and in the coffee house, you would not only be associating with people who weren't slobbering drunk like you'd find in the pubs, but learned men who were oftentimes there to share ideas, try out some new theory amongst other sober-minded persons, and sometimes even give lectures. Of course, you also had those drunk people that would go into the coffee house to sober up a little bit and then go back to go drinking again. The fears of Ottoman sultans began to be realized in these European coffee houses. In fact, King Charles II of England banned coffee houses and coffee itself for fear that this would lead to a revolution because of the types of ideas that were being talked about there. Okay, now, I have to give Charles II the benefit of the doubt here because remember that his father, Charles I, was the king who was ruling during the English Civil War and lost his head. So the idea of liberal-minded people sitting down and talking politics amongst themselves in the most sober way possible would definitely make me nervous if I were him. Of course, since this was so outrageously unpopular, the ban went away almost as soon as it was put in place. Something we need to keep in mind is that keeping the will of the people on the side of a monarchy was something that was very important at this time. In fact, we can think about the King James translation of the Bible being set with a mandate to specifically highlight the parts where it talks about the king's divine right to rule. After all, this was a time in which people were no longer simple peasants, with literacy on the rise and education along with it. While kings in the past were able to say that the average person was ignorant and 
should have no voice in the government, that argument was losing steam and they knew it. So having these coffee houses in place and especially being popular in areas that either just came off of a civil war, like we saw in England, or were just on the cusp of a revolution like in France, you can really understand why these rulers had a lot to fear. But let's go back to France for a moment. As I'd mentioned before, the Enlightenment happened to take place around the time that coffee became widespread. One of the more famous writers during this time, Voltaire, is known to be obsessed with coffee and reportedly drank about 50 cups a day. Although it should be noted that he didn't drink it straight uh, and oftentimes mixed it with chocolate, but still, 50 cups is a lot. Stephen G. Tallentire, in his book The Life of Voltaire, Volume 1, wrote that, quote, He dined in Paris that night at a coffee house with a few other literary men. He arrived rather late. He came straight from Versailles and alone of the company knew what had occurred there. He made his dinner, after his frugal fashion, off seven or eight cups of black coffee and a couple of rolls, and was very talkative and amusing." Unquote. Of that last part, I have no doubt. <laughs> if you have a chance to actually read any of Voltaire's work, you'll notice that he was actually a pretty funny guy. And uh, I can only imagine what he'd be like after, well, 50 cups of coffee. He was wealthy enough to have people to make coffee for him at home, but he also enjoyed taking his coffee at some of the more famous Parisian coffee houses, namely the Café Brocopé. This was one of the more famous centers for intellectuals, philosophes, and tabloid writers. So it's no wonder that the French monarchy wasn't too keen about these people getting together in the same place, especially when alcohol was not involved. This and other cafes were known to have visitors coming from other parts of the world, with Café Procopé hosting such revolutionaries as Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Paul Jones. It's no coincidence that many of the founding documents of the United States ended up quoting not just French philosophes, but particularly the ones that frequented this and other coffee houses in Paris. It's no surprise that within less than a century, the same coffee houses hosted leaders for one of the bloodiest revolutions of all time. Okay, now, as a side note, I'm not sure if it's just me, but was the French Revolution actually a revolution or more like a civil war? I mean, like, call me crazy, but I always think of revolutions as when a separate entity, such as colonies, getting their independence in North America and Haiti, while if you're trying to change things within your own country, that'd be more of a civil war. I don't know. Speaking of Voltaire, one of his very good friends was Frederick the Great of Prussia. Old Fritz, as he was known, had two problems with coffee in his country. The first was that he felt that coffee was inferior to beer in many ways, especially for Germans. He said, quote, It is disgusting to notice the increase in the quantity of coffee used by my subjects and the amount of money that goes out of the country in consequence. Everybody is using coffee. If possible, this must be prevented. My people must drink beer. His Majesty was brought up on beer, and so were his ancestors and his officers. Many battles have been fought and won by soldiers nourished on beer, and the king does not believe that coffee-drinking soldiers can be depended upon to endure hardship or to beat his enemies in case of the occurrence of another war." Unquote. In his defense, he wasn't all that concerned about revolutionaries like other parts of Europe since people seemed to like him and his policies. But he was a bit of a grouch, obviously, but mostly in a lovable way. One thing I would say is that he had some legitimate issues with coffee when it came to his economy. Coffee was still something that was relatively rare 
and had to be imported from the Middle East, though increasingly it did become available from countries such as the Dutch and the French. The big concern was that they didn't have much of a trading relationship with the Middle East. So at this time, whenever people purchased coffee from the ports of Mocha, that was gold and silver that was leaving the economy and would probably never make its way back. Also, if they were buying from the Dutch or from the French, these were nations that typically weren't always at war with the, with the Prussians, but uh, it was possible that they would go back to war at some point. And so anytime they would purchase coffee from them, it was like giving money to the enemy in some way. So with these two points, I mean, I, I think he had something there. He ended up restricting coffee imports by only allowing coffee that had been roasted by licensed roasters within Prussia to be sold. By this point, coffee was now being grown in areas that Europeans had colonized, such as Java and Martinique. While these restrictions seem reasonable on their face, almost all applications for roasters were denied and only very few were accepted. Trying to find ways to put disabled veterans to work, which honestly, that was pretty decent of Frederick the Great. He sent out dozens of them to literally sniff out coffee in the streets to find illegal roasters to turn them in. A topic that we'll get into at a later time is that of coffee's growth in other parts of the world outside of the Middle East, since this involves two very important concepts that frankly will probably end up having their own foundational series episodes, cash cropping and slavery. But as we wrap up our story here, I want you to really think what the world would have been like without coffee. While many in the arts in the 17th and 18th century ran on coffee, such as Beethoven, who literally wrote musical pieces about coffee, it appears that the intellectual awakening of Europe was very much due to coffee literally bringing them to their senses and giving them the energy and focus to come up with some of the basic concepts that we take for granted in our governments today, such as life, liberty, and property, which the Americans changed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and understanding how economies work and what role the free markets and governments play in it. Probably the first and greatest product of the Enlightenment ideas was that of the American Revolution, and eventually its constitution. From that we have the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Bolivarian Revolutions, and many more. Even nations that didn't have revolutions per se still saw major changes in the way that they dealt with their citizens. And all of this thanks to until next time, this has been Dave Militello, who reminds you that we all write our own history, so make yours delicious. <laughs>